It's Monday, March 18th, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 200 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thank you for joining us for uh, a very special episode of the 5049 podcast. Today is episode 200, and I am excited to welcome onto the show an exceptional, extraordinary young bass player named Henry Fraser. Let's have a listen to his newest report. Henry is the shit. He's the real deal. Today's a good talk, and uh, you're in for a good one. Today on the show, episode 200, it's me and Henry Fraser. Before we get into it, uh, shit, man, there's a lot to talk about. This is normally when uh, I, I beg and plead for you guys to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, as well as sign up for the Patreon, but I'm not going to do that today. As I mentioned, today is episode 200, and as much as I've been trying to convince myself that there's no importance to a milestone, that the number 200 really doesn't mean anything, um, it does. It does. It actually means a lot to me. I think I try in my life to not be a sentimental person. Um, I don't like nostalgia. I think I, think I try to make a concerted effort at avoiding those things but the truth in the matter is I am a romantic person I am a person who attaches meaning to things I am I, I try to be a person that sees poetry in things and, and sees symmetry and, and meaning um, that's, that's how I find meaning in life whether that's music or film or, or, or books or friendships or taking a walk along the East River just outside my house there is meaning to these things, uh, to these milestones. And today's a big one. Today is 200 episodes, which is kind of crazy to me. I started the podcast back in 2013. Um, as many of you know, as some of you know, maybe most of you, I don't know. I did 86 episodes and I, 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 I pulled the plug. I stopped the podcast for over two years. I did so because I was really stressed out at the time. My personal life was a mess, and I really needed to focus on other things. But I, I had no intention of bringing it back. And you never know when, when you're doing things, uh, when you're making work. It's hard to know of anyone is listening or if they care or if it means anything to anyone. And perhaps more than anything I've done, any records that I've made, any concerts that I've done, uh, the response to this podcast has been truly deep, truly inspiring, and and I, I, I say this with no sense of brokenheartedness. Of all the stuff I've done, this is the thing that resonates most with people. This is the thing that... I was asking a friend recently, uh, a very successful musician with whom you're all familiar, uh, for a bit of advice. I was frustrated. Why am I not getting the opportunities that other people are getting as a musician? When, when's my turn? 
And quite bluntly, he said, look, clarinet, electroacoustic clarinet, dissonant-based improvisation is a tough sell. This is not the way that you, you know, float your way into the big festival circuit and, and, and get the big bucks. And it's true. I want people to, to connect with my music. I want to have that experience with people. But it's not for everyone. Something like this, something like this podcast is more universal. So I don't begrudge at all that, that this is the thing that most people um, who know me and know my work connect with. In fact, it makes me really happy. And getting ready for this show, looking you know on the horizon as, as this episode was approaching, I, I played with different ideas. I, you know, I, I mentioned last week I emailed a couple of people who would be like big, cool guests. You know, I emailed Mike Patton. And it occurred to me that what would really be special, what would be really meaningful, would be to bring in the listeners. As people that know me well can tell you, I am the worst at responding to email. It is really, really something that I need to take a look at and address because I'm really bad at it. And over the years, I've gotten a lot of really nice, really thoughtful emails from you guys. And if I've never responded to them, I, I'm really sorry, and I hope you haven't taken that personally. I'm bad at email. Um, but I thought it would be cool to start today's episode uh, reading some emails that I've gotten going all the way back to 2013. The stuff that people uh, have written to me is so meaningful to me. It is really, uh, I am happy and confident to know that this show, you know, I, I, I do this thing by myself. I'm in a small apartment in the Lower East Side, and I literally handle every single aspect of this show. Every single aspect from dealing with stupid, you know, web issues, getting the fucking episodes uploaded when there's problems, editing, booking, the whole thing. Um, and at this point, you know, 200 people, most of whom are strangers, come into my apartment, sit down for two hours and, and, and get into it. It's deep. And I'm, I'm happy to know that this, that it's, it's more than just me. It's not a vanity project. That, that this has impact for people. We've built something here. And there's great power in that. We have our own megaphone here. We have our own way of communicating to people that's very direct. And it's meaningful. And, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some emails in a few minutes. And, and you'll see thematically in these emails that people all over the world are getting something from this. And that it helps them feel closer to the music. And I'm happy for that. I, I, I can feel like I've contributed something that people get something from um as i mentioned henry fraser's on the show today but before we get into it with him i'm going to read a bunch of emails if you if you're not interested you want to hear the uh the just go straight to the interview click ahead about 20 minutes or so and before i i open up these emails let me just say thank you thank you to all of you who've been here since the beginning listening since episode one Thank you to everyone who's come along since. Thank you to the people that support the Patreon. 
people that have written me emails, people that, you know, give 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 your time and headspace to this this show and these voices. It's hard for a lot of us, you know, making music, putting it out in the world can be a very lonely process. Uh, you don't always get the feedback that that you know you hope for, and it means the world to me that you guys check in with me and 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 listen to these people and check out these stories and and I just want to say thank you. I don't uh, thank you. Every time you guys put these headphones in your ears, you know it it means a lot to me. Okay, so. Uh, this first email is a recent one from Ryan. Dear Jeremiah, just wanted to take a second to really thank you for doing this podcast and for making records. After loving the first 100 episodes, I just rediscovered it. My friend Simon Haynes got to be on the show, and I was so fucking excited. As an admittedly self-doubting composer-performer of improvised-slash-composed-slash-sort-of-weird music who spends years meticulously working on stuff that he fears probably sounds like shit to most people, I fucking love your podcast. Anyways, I heard your Bill Frizzell interview just now, and something you discussed regarding the nature of creative identity, quote, not being from Harlem in the 30s, has completely changed my life in a powerful and inspiring way. My bathtub moment. Incredible. Thank you for doing this podcast. It's official. I gotta start sending you money on that Patreon thing. Thanks again, and please continue making things that you love, no matter where that takes you. Ryan. Ryan, thank you. Uh, that email <laughs> that was a funny one. Uh, that meant a lot to me, and I appreciate uh, you writing and your sense of humor, and I'm glad you're digging the show. Here's one from December 2013 that I'm going to have to edit uh, uh, for this purpose. Um, This person sent me a donation and specifically requested that I didn't mention their name. So this will be a slightly edited version uh, of their email to honor their original request of, of keeping their anonymity. Hi, Jeremiah. I am a bassist here in St. Louis. I don't really listen to podcasts or the radio at all. I stumbled across 5049, who knows how. I've listened to them all, and I learned so much and will probably be decoding this information for years to come. Thank you for including your own struggles into these programs. While they are, of course, different than mine, they do in some way help me deal with my own. I, like most musicians, have little or no money. I'm struggling just like everyone else. I did, however, want to at least make a gesture and send some money your way as a thank you. I wish it could be more, but it is honestly even a little more than I could spare. I know this work isn't easy, and I truly appreciate all the sacrifice and dedication you have put into this. It has not gone unnoticed. I have recently started turning my older students onto the podcast, as well as have been receiving positive feedback. You are making a difference. It doesn't always feel like it. I'm sure many days there is a what-the-hell-am-I-doing voice that creeps in. But there is someone halfway across the country that is listening and is growing because of your work. I knew I wanted to send something but had little to send. I made it a goal on the last tour I was going to at least put away $2 a day. It seemed doable. At the end, I ended up with almost 100 bucks, and I'm sending that your way. I know it isn't much, but please accept it as a bigger gesture of gratitude and thanks. Maybe you can take your wife out to a nice dinner. 
I know you also like to thank people, but I would appreciate if you wouldn't use my name. It's weird, I know, but at least, but it would mean a lot if you didn't. Good luck in your future endeavors. Sorry I'm not so great with words. I hope you can read a little between the lines and understand my thanks. All the best. <sighs> Thank you. That one was a good one. I always like uh, when I hear from other musicians. Most of the people I think that listen to the show or, or feel compelled to reach out, they, they tend to be musicians themselves. But, but here's one from uh, a musician I really respect, Andy Biskin. Hey, Jeremiah. The podcast is fantastic. I stumbled on it through Ben Goldberg. I'm also a clarinetist, so I appreciate all the shop talk with Chris, Ben, Doug, Falzone, etc. That would be uh, Chris Speed, Ben Goldberg, Doug Weaselman, and, and James Falzone. But also just the unvarnished, from-the-heart conversations with many of my contemporary heroes and colleagues. I just gave it a glowing review in iTunes, but it seems like I'm not alone in my praise for it. I've also been sending some cats to it. What a great service you've done to get these stories down. I feel like it will become part of our legacy for generations to come. Best to you, Andy Biscuit. Andy, that means a lot to me. And uh, we got to get you on the podcast. we got to do some talking. Um, I, I, I hope that this uh, has uh, some sort of life in perpetuity. You know, I think it will. I think it will. The numbers are strong. You know, 200 episodes. That's a lot of fucking talk. There's got to, you know... Even if it's only ten of them, there's there's some stuff in there that I think will will live on. Uh, hope you know, well past me. Uh, one show that was really important for me, and one that received a lot of feedback, was an episode, the very last episode from 2013. It was an episode that I dedicated to a friend of mine who had passed away early that year, uh, named Craig Liskey. He was an older musician that I played with. Uh, the first improvising I'd ever done was with Craig. Was in Athens, Georgia. He literally turned me on to this entire world of music. He was the first person to lay CDs by like Fred Frith, Zorn, Evan Parker, Albert Eiler, like literally all the cornerstones. He, he, he put them on me. Hugely important person in my life who died very suddenly at the start of 2013. At the end of 2013, the final episode was uh, me interviewing a number of people that had worked closely with Craig, knew Craig, and it was a very emotional experience doing the entire thing, interviewing the people, editing it, thinking back on the time that I had spent with Craig. Um, and I'm going to read an email here from a person named Summer who wrote to me in response to that, that episode. Jeremiah, I just want to take a few minutes to tell you how much I enjoyed listening to your podcast tribute to Craig. He was one of my best friends for about 15 years, and it was a very nice way to remember him on his birthday. It's funny how amazing he was with people. Everyone he interacted with, he made feel special, and he was super supportive and would give great advice. But he'd also be the first to call you out on your bullshit. I feel very fortunate that he was part of my family, and I know you what you mean about it not seeming like he's gone. He was so invested in so many of us. It really feels like he's over our shoulders playing guardian angel and making sure he doesn't miss anything. I met you and some of the other guys in your podcast once or twice over several years. I've only been to Athens a handful of times, so most of you probably don't remember me, but I remember how important you guys were to Craig. When I lived in Boone, he'd always call me when he had friends playing in the area. 
Southern bitch played at the Blowing Rock every now and then. I remember seeing Baghouse at an Irish pub in Boone. They were pretty much crammed in the corner by the bar, and my friend and I both bought their CD, even though we were broke college kids that could barely afford the cover to see them. I guess 19 is a pretty pivotal age. I was about 19 when I met Craig, and he hired me to work for him at Sam Goody while he was living here in North Carolina. We helped each other through a lot of tough times, and I referred to him as my own personal shrink on more than one occasion. He was the rare kind of person that you could just tell anything to. He's still the first person I want to call with good or bad news. I can relate to that. I remember seeing you guys play Pinochle, the Pinochle show at Flickr Bar. He was so excited, and it was such a unique show. I've never really seen anything else like it. And he was so proud of you when you moved to New York and you were having success at chasing your dreams. He was so happy for you with the big exploitation project. That was my first CD. And he was excited to be a part of it. I'm actually the one that turned my apartment into the rock star crash pad when he and Jeff were driving back from that. And we were too tired to try to make it all the way to Athens. I live in Charlotte. He gave me a copy of your CD as a thank you. Anyways... I'm probably rambling, but thanks for putting such an awesome tribute to Craig out there in the world. Keep living your dreams. He'll be smiling over your shoulder. Summer. I really appreciate hearing from people like that, and um, it, 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 it reifies things, you know? You have a relationship in the world, a personal relationship, a creative relationship, and um, it's it's valuable beyond anything I could say. I miss Craig very much, and uh, getting that email really, really hit me pretty hard. So thank you, Summer. Uh, one of the earliest episodes of the podcast was my conversation with Anthony Coleman. And that was an interesting one. That was that by far, by far the longest episode of the podcast. Uh, it's one of my favorite ones. It's one that's uh, gotten a tremendous amount of feedback over the years. There, there was something I, I kind of forgot about this until I read this email that I'm going to read to you. I was a little upset at the time that I'd put it up. I had um, gotten some pretty negative feedback from a fellow musician, someone I had actually written to to ask uh, to come on the show. And rather than just saying, no thanks, this person uh, wrote me a message really, really pretty critical of the podcast, of what I was doing, of the tone of it, of the people that had been on it. Um, and it kind of it messed me up pretty bad. And I had addressed that in the in the intro to the episode with Anthony. Now with some time... You know, when I think back on that email and that and, and what I had said at the start of that show, it, it doesn't affect me as much. You know, I, I feel much more uh, confident uh, with, with my, my footing and the work that I've done with this show. But here's an email from someone who was writing in response to what I had said uh, at the start of that show. This is from someone named Patrice. Hi there, Jeremiah. Wanted to send you an email ever since I heard your podcast interview with Anthony Coleman. Great stuff. In the intro to the episode, you mentioned people sending you negative comments. Let me simply say this. Fuck the haters. It's so freaking easy to type out some stupid comments, but takes work and dedication to put together a show like yours. If there were more people on this planet with your kind of heart, attitude, whatever you want to call it, then this would be a much, much, much better place. 
The only thing that I don't like about the show, there's so many great and hilarious stories that oftentimes I look like a complete and utter crazy person, bursting out laughing when traveling on the bus. Luckily, I was walking in a quiet place, no peeps around, when Matthew Shipp's arts class story came up. I almost fell over. I had to laugh so hard. Uh, side note, that story has gotten more feedback than any, 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 anything else on the entire podcast. Uh, it, you know, Matt actually told me when he came back that he's, people still fucking approach him about that. Back to the email. A bit about myself, which I felt like sharing after hearing your talk about finding musicians on Craigslist. Craigslist. I'm from the Principality of Liechtenstein. Probably not many 5049 podcast listeners here, but I spent almost 10 years in Bangkok. Played the drums in quite a few bands there. Electronica, punk rock, indie pop, garage rock, etc. 80% of the bands I found on myspace.com. And I was at that festival in Munich. Lou Reed, no drummer, who he fell ill a couple hours before the show featuring Mark Rebeau on guitar. And a few hours later, Rebeau on stage playing Crystal Knock. As you can tell, I could go on all day. I won't. Thanks again for the show. I will contribute as soon as things are going to a little bit better over here. Yours, Patrice. P.S. Just listened to the first, very first episode today, and just as it was over, another car crashed into mine. Okay? Thank you, Patrice. So as I said at the top of the show, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stretch out and take uh, much more time in this, in this intro than I normally do. And here for your enjoyment is that episode from 2013 of Matthew Shipp telling me his story of the time he was uh, a nude model for an art class. Well, I started at Parsons, uh-huh. and um, and then the guy at Parsons, Robert Speller, who I still see around hanging out at McDonald's sometimes, <laughs> um, he could get you jobs all around the city. Yeah, and that was pretty flexible. It was yeah, it was flexible. The- it was um, and you could work as much as or as little as you want, and it it was yeah, it was all right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After a couple of years, I just couldn't do it any longer. I'm not going to tell this story in my last time. Well, I, 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 I am. <laughs> These are the good stories. This is <laughs> no. I, I think my subconscious mind was trying to give me a, a real, tell me it was time to stop. Uh huh. But the last class I ever did as an art school model was a all female class, and I was in a reclining pose. Were you clothed? No, I was nude. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, reclining, yeah. And I fell asleep, in a pose. And when I was asleep, I, I noticed, I was like, wow, this feels good. <laughs> and I wake up, and I just see everybody's mouth just wide open. And I, 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 when I was asleep, I had, had an erection and, and, and a wet dream. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I looked at the teacher, and she was, like, freaking out. And I just said, excuse me. And she's like, excuse you. Why should I? Didn't you already do what you have to do? <laughs> so she like, ex- she, like, dismissed class. And I was thinking, you know, maybe I should just, uh, this is, yeah. <laughs> period at the end of this one. Done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So, so, so I went out with a blast, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you dig? Uh, that was the famous Matt Chip story. Not necessarily uh, related to music, but uh, a funny one nonetheless. Over the years, uh, I've had a lot of different people on the show, Um you know, I think most of the diversity of the show comes in the different uh, comes comes from the different places in music that people come from. I've had a lot of improvisers, a lot of composers, um, a lot of metal musicians, uh, and a couple years ago, I had uh, in pretty short succession Kevin Huffnagel from Dysrhythmia, Gore Guts, and Colin Marston, also of Dysrhythmia and Gore Guts, on the show. 
And about a year later, maybe two years later, an email popped up from Luke LeMay, which kind of made me do a spit take. You guys know Luke LeMay, the driving force behind Gore Guts? Hey, my friend, love your website and the podcast. Not very often we can find smart conversation about the craft of composition. Long life to 5049. All the best, Luke LeMay. You dig? That was a fucking nice email to get. Here's a quick one from a a fellow musician across the pond. Dear Jeremiah, I just wanted to say thank you for the podcast. Brett Higgins turned me on to it, and I've been obsessively going through the back catalog. It's such a great treasure trove and so valuable. Living on the other side of the world from most of the music that I love, it's such a deep connection and really meaningful to hear all these people I love talking about the work. It's really meaningful to be able to connect in any way with this scene, and you fucking kill it, man. The joy of just hearing musicians talking music is transcendental and really inspirational. Best, Sam. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate that. Here's one from Berlin. This was uh, shortly after the podcast had had reemerged after its uh, two-year hiatus. This is from Christoph. Hey, Jeremiah. It was quite a surprise to find your 5049 podcast back in my queue suddenly and unexpectedly last October. I meant to write you and give you a thumbs up ever since, but work, work, work has eaten me up. So here it is. Thank you so much for doing all this. This is a great show, and every Monday, like today, I wake up in Berlin, get on my commute, and I'm happy to hear those words spoken by you. It's Monday. Keep them coming. The 5049 is a treasure trove of knowledge, stories, and not least of great music to be discovered. Be well, and please make another blood mist happening. Best Kristoff. I think he means uh, another blood mist record, which Kristoff, we got one in the can. It's done. It will be the next release on 5049. So, so I'll, be, I'll, I'll be yammering about that soon. Uh, sometimes people write to kindly correct me on uh, on things I've said that that may uh, have been inaccurate or incorrect. Here's one that came to me from San Francisco uh, just a couple of weeks ago after the episode with Weasel Walter. This is from Rob. Hi, Jeremiah. I'm a big fan of the podcast and support the Patreon. I listened to the Weasel Walter episode, who I played with when he lived out here. There was a casual remark about the Bay Area scene being dead. I just have to contest this notion. There's a lot of good stuff going on out here in the creative music zone. I was talking about this with another great musician friend this afternoon who also heard the interview, which is to say you have creative music people out here listening to your show, and we're out here working. Anyways, thanks for what you do. I've learned a lot from your show. But please note that we are doing things out here, and we are alive and well. Cheers, Rob. Rob, you're right, and I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know. I, I've, I based that comment on uh, nothing of my own experience, of things that, that people have told me. I've never played music in San Francisco. I would love to play music in San Francisco. If I've, I've, if I've ever said anything about the San Francisco scene, it it's, might just because, uh, be because I'm kind of bitter about having never played there. So if you know a place that I can come play, like a real gig, holler at me. But uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to be condescending in any way to, to what you guys are doing out there. Okay, here's another one uh, of someone taking me to task over something I said, uh, albeit politely. This is from Carl. 
Hey, Jeremiah. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I look forward to listening every week. I got hip to it when you interview, uh, interviewed Oren and Barchi, and I immediately went back and listened to the entire archive. After this week's discussion of electronic instruments, which, by the way, I don't remember. Um, this is me talking. Uh, which show he's referring to. Uh, after this week's discussion of electronic instruments, Ableton Live, etc., I felt like I had to write in as someone who's been engaged with electronic music and improvised music for as long as I can remember to defend players of electronics. Sure, maybe there's not a ton of people out there right now improvising with Ableton Live, but they are, all caps, are out there. And the same goes for modular synth players, maybe even more so. There's a deep history of this kind of stuff, too. Hugh Davies, David Tudor, David Berman, Jim O'Rourke, Mark Fell, on and on. Anyway, you should get Oni Hot Tricks Point Never on this show. I probably won't do that. Keep up the good work. You're one of the best music podcasts out there. Cheers, Carl. Carl, uh, thank you. I consider myself largely an electronic musician. So uh, if I, I, I think I, I, I've been critical of uh, a lot of um, music that I've heard that's made with Ableton Live and that I can hear it. I can hear that it's Ableton Live. Um, but yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. You know, it's, I, I have felt, listen back to my conversation with Raz Mess and I from a couple of weeks ago. Definitely electronic musicians get maligned unfairly. And I certainly didn't mean to contribute to that. Um, so thank you for your email. Over the years, I've gotten a lot of emails from people thanking me for these conversations because of their geographic location, that they're somewhat isolated, that they don't, they don't live in a place like you know New York or, or, or Paris or you know L.A. where there's just a million things going on. And here's one from a few years ago from RJ. Hey, Jeremiah, I just recently found out about your label and podcast from seeing your name in Andrew Hawk's tape. I'm really enjoying the podcast so far. It couldn't have come at a better time since I just, since just recently I'm trying to expand my horizons and get into more exper- the more experimental side of things. Coming from the middle of nowhere in the Canadian prairies, all the podcasts I've listened to have really romanticized the idea of New York in my mind. I'm unsure whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing yet. Ha ha. This might sound ridiculous to you since you're from there, but the whole vibe of the city sounds incredible. I'm in a town of about 7,500 people where there's no musicians other than the group around 15, around 15 middle-aged men who play awful covers of played-out classic rock tracks. We have that here too, by the way, RJ. And then the trendy metalcore kids. We definitely have that here. It's really quite discouraging thing to not be able to find even one other like-minded musician that's not interested in doing things exactly by the rules. And from what I've heard, your podcast and what I've heard from your podcast, NYC sounds like an epicenter of interesting musicians. Eh, the jury's still out on that. Oh well, though, I'll survive. Or maybe I'll just nonchalantly pack a bag and a guitar, apply for U.S. citizenship, and head east one day. Ha ha. Anyways, sorry for the bizarre ramblings. Have had a few drinks tonight and figured you might be mildly interesting in hearing this for some reason. Cheers. Riley. Riley, I did appreciate that. Um, and don't worry, man. There's plenty of uninteresting and, and just completely mediocre musicians here in New York. Um, usually they're the ones that get like the really cool opportunities. But that's another story. 
here is another one from a person who, uh, at least at the time of, of their email to me in February 2015, was feeling geographically isolated. This is from Greg. Hi, Jeremiah. Thanks for putting together the 5049 podcast. I joined in late, just in time for the last few episodes, but I have already gone back and listened to at least half of them by now and more every day. As a huge fan of free jazz and free improvisation, having spent the last 20-plus years of my life in South Carolina, far away from any such scene, I have been delighted to hear the behind-the-scenes insight, stories, etc. provided by the podcast by the musicians who have been dear in my heart for many years now. It feels like a window looking into a vibrant but all-too-small sliver of the music world. Your podcast has made me smile. It has made me laugh. It has even made me cry a few times. In short, it has made me feel. Thanks again for putting together the podcast and everything you have done for the music community. It means a lot to me. Greg. Greg, thank you. Uh, this is... Oh, uh, no, I did write back to you. Uh, no. No, I mean, yes, thank you, but, um, but thank you. I did write back to you. Um, I sound like Donald Trump right now. Jesus Christ. That email meant a lot to me. I got a little choked up reading that one. Uh, speaking of choked up, this is the last one I'm going to read, and this one is uh, this is an email. This was from Jordan, and this email came in um, shortly after I ended the podcast. Uh, this is from February 2015, so this would have been around the time that I just ended the podcast, and this is from Jordan. And uh, this is quite an email. Hey, Jeremiah. I didn't expect that my first email to you would be on the occasion of the fi final 5049 podcast. I meant to email you before just to express my support and happiness over the existence of the podcast, so it really came as a shock, especially having not caught up on the last few episodes yet, that you're ending it. Excuse the length of this email, it's gotten out of hand already. I'm not a musician, but I'm a big, big music fan. And when I discovered John Zorn and the downtown scene, my musical life changed forever. It's a huge part of my life, and has been since about 2002. I feel lucky enough to have been able to go to Tonic for a few years before it closed. I still have my Save Tonic button and a few calendar pamphlets, and I feel lucky now to have The Stone, where I see shows extremely often. But this music scene is a solitary one for me. I can fucking relate to that. Besides two people I recently met at The Stone who attend shows with similar similar regularity, I haven't been able to get anyone I know to consistently go to see music with me for a whole host of stupid reasons. Too much money, the listener isn't adventurous enough, they don't want to see stuff they've never heard of, it's too cold, it's too hot, it's too far, it's not happening inside their apartment at the exact moment that they want it to, so it's too much effort, etc., etc. I have great disdain for laziness when it comes to culture. And by that, I mean youngish people who live in NYC and refuse to take advantage of its unprecedented and vast cultures and scenes. I'm with you there. So I connect so strongly with the music that I don't require a communal connection, at least not beyond the perceived community that I feel a part of simply by witnessing it while I see the shows. The music is enough for me, and the community that makes that music, while not my community, is enough as well. I hear you, man. But what I'm saying is that your podcast 
has meant a lot to me because it strengthens my connection to the music slash music scene on a more personal level, on a community level. I feel more connected to the community through it. This music that is such a huge part of my life is a part of my life that I have very little opportunity to share with others, to discuss or have dialogues about, to reminisce or enjoy or learn from other people's experiences or thoughts. Your podcast, even though I'm not actually involved in the conversation, has in its way given me an outlet for that. I felt part of the discussion. I felt a great enjoyment listening to you get into it with all these musicians I admire, who you admire. And I identify with you. We both have a reverence and excitement for this scene, and I feel your excitement through the podcast. It sounds to me like you are continually amazed by the fact of your own participation in a scene that you admire so much, that you have gratitude and respect for this amazing scene of which you are a part. Like you say, you're doing the community service of trying to give back to the scene from which you benefit. I feel this way even as a non-participating audience member of the scene. Every time I go to the stone or see music that excites me, I am still filled with amazement and awe that I am in New York City and I'm part of this, you know? I felt that way at Tonic and I feel it now. And I wish there was some way to expose more people to it, to make them hear and see. And I wish I could connect with more people who feel that. I'm not a musician, though I am a musician at heart, and whenever possible, I'm drawn to messing around on any instrument I can get my hands on. But we are similar age, early 30s or so. I'm probably three years younger, and we both experience a similar Mr. Bungle to John Zorn path, though I have some things in between. I appreciate your perspective. It's a good end to this world, and it's relatable. Another great thing about the podcast is that the connection, is, is that the connection it makes to the scene and the music is also a cultural and historical education, both of the past and the present. As much time as I spend at the Stone or seeing music, listening to music, reading about music, I haven't been able to spend nearly as much time learning about it as I could when I was younger with more free time. So there are things that I miss. There are so many things I don't know about, and your podcast has helped me fill some of those gaps. And the stories. Hearing other people's stories about this music and this scene and this history from listening to Anthony Coleman, who I could just listen to all day, to Kid Millions, who I've been following for in Oneida for 12 years, talk about his days as a booker at the Knitting Factory, which I had no idea about. So amazing. So much oral history comes out of a project like this that you wouldn't get anywhere else outside of having long personal conversations with each other and with these musicians. Something that I see as a music fan rarely have... A something that I, as a music fan, rarely have access to. Though I will say that since I've been living in New York City, all the musicians in this scene are very open, giving, and personable. You are recording the oral history of the downtown jazz slash avant-garde slash improv scene as it is and can be told since 2013. It is important. I also had no idea that you ran the stone for so long. I was living in Boston and Connecticut for a while, so I missed a lot of the years in the mid-2000s. But I am at the Stone every night that I can be. In fact, I really want to be involved in a place like that, and I've gotten to know some of the volunteers, and maybe I'll be able to work there someday. Anyway, I understand why you had to end the podcast. Things have to end. Podcasts can't go on forever. 
And in this genre, you can't make your living entirely off of live podcast tours like Mark Marin could now. But I'm also in the camp of thinking you could do it once a month or bring it back now and then. I'm not someone who consumes podcasts in the traditional way. And once you've subscribed, you're subscribed. People who care are paying attention, will know and when it's updated or when it's back. So I just wanted to reach out and tell you thanks for making the connection. I hope to see you at the stone. Jordan. Jordan, thank you. I uh I don't know. I don't I don't know what's going on with the stone. Now that it's, you know, part of the new school, I haven't really been I actually haven't been there since it moved to the new school. Um but I hope you're good. I know you. And your email meant a lot to me. So thank you for listening. Thank you for 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 sitting back for the net last 40 minutes and and you know, let me read these emails to you. Everything you guys do, everything you 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 feel, you think, you write, it means a lot to me. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this thing. This this podcast really is you. It's you guys. And every Patreon donor Every email, every, you know, I played a gig last night in Brooklyn and this cat came up to me and said, man, I love the podcast. My great hope for for this, for any work that I do, is that it exists for people and that it's somehow meaningful to them. So thank you all. 200 episodes. I'm drinking a whiskey right now. I'm raising it. And here's to another 200 people coming through my apartment, being attacked by my chihuahuas, walking into my tiny workspace and and kind of looking around uncomfortably. Let's keep it going. All right. Today on the show, Henry Fraser. What do you guys know about Henry Fraser? Here's what I know about him. He's one of the uh, the better... The better, the best, the better of the best of, of young cats coming around right now. He's originally from the Boston area. He plays the shit out of the bass. He went to NEC. He studied with Anthony Coleman. He studied with Ted Reichman. He, you know, he did his time there. He's been living in New York since 2014. And I can tell you with absolute certainty that Henry Fraser is someone that you're going to be hearing from for many years to come. This guy's for real. I had a text exchange the uh, a couple days ago with a, a former participant, a former guest from the podcast, Sam Weinberg, where we were we, we got into it. We're talking about Henry, and we agreed upon the fact that he is a combination of virtuosity, humility, and just awesomeness. Henry's the shit. I'm putting together a quartet. Henry's going to be part of it. Henry, I don't know if you knew that, but... Um, we're going to do some work together. We're going to do some playing. Henry is the real deal. He's put out some solo recordings. He's been working recently um, with Anthony Coleman's trio. He's enjoy the conversation. This is a this is a real cat, and you know, not to make it creepy, he's pretty easy on the eyes. Henry Fraser's uh, a good looking dude. So, if you want to find out more about Henry Fraser. Do yourself a favor. Go to henry-fraser.com. Check him out. He's, uh, he's just getting started on a career of awesomeness that you all can look forward to. 
henry-fraser.com. Thank you all for continuing to listen. Thank you for your patronage. Thank you for your emails. Thank you for your good energy. Thank you for, for you know, making this thing real. I guess that's what it boils down to. Thank you for, you know, indulging me in whatever this is. I think this is good. I think, I think we've, we've created something that people can, you know, get something out of. So, so thank you. It's really about you. All right. Here's my conversation with Henry Fraser. Kind of a moron with pedals. I use them in uh, Chris Pitsiokas' band. Because you play electric bass in that. I play electric bass in that. Um, but, yeah. I, but what do you use? I don't really know what I'm doing. In that pedal, I have a, I mean, I know I have an envelope filter and a okay. fuzz pedal and uh delay pedal. So you're just affecting the color of the notes. You're not, like, creating this indeterminate soup. Well, yeah, I, uh, no, not really. The delay is on a pretty short thing. Right. Um. But, yeah, I don't really have, like, it was funny, I was thinking about it, because the person uh, who was playing in sort of the iteration of CPU unit before me was Tim Dahl, who's like a total... He's a pedal dude. Yeah, he's a total genius, uh, right. you know, with his pedal work, he used, like, uses the bass as, like, a trigger sometimes, yeah. you know, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, my use of pedals is pretty cursory at best. Right. Yeah. That's probably a good thing to, to keep it that way. Nothing good comes from getting really into pedals. Well, I, I, I mean, Tim Dahl, but I view, I view it as uh, more like, I'm not going to go out on a limb. You know what I mean? Yeah. When people do it so well, like, yeah, I just haven't had a chance to put in the time and it's also bread. It's another <laughs> instrument, you know? but yeah, yeah, sure. Like, do you yeah, know this dude, mean? Justin Pearson? No. Bass player, he plays, uh, he's in a million bands, but the Locust, uh, blah, 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 Head Wound City, Retox, all these different bands. Huh. I think he sings in Retox, actually, but he plays this bass. And he's got like you know two gigantic pedal boards, and his sound is his bass sounds like a fucking robot. Mm. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know it wouldn't be what it is without the pedals. Yeah. And it's like there's the two extremes. There's that and like Tim, where it's like yeah, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. And then there's a lot of bad shit in between. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, it's funny because my whole electric bass thing is actually I'm the opposite of most bass players, where I played upright bass first and mm -hmm. I played cello before that. So that's like my whole introduction. Yeah. And then I started playing electric bass kind of when I it actually sort of started with playing with Chris like four or five years ago. Really? It was it was a practical thing. It was like we got together with what would become his quartet. Uh huh. Um we were active for like a year or so, like okay. four years ago. And um we wanted to I we played like one gig where I played upright with Andrew Smiley and Jason Nazary. Uh huh. Uh that was a quartet. But then we wanted to go on tour and I mean, yeah, and we, he set, brought up, and it, but it was actually it kind of made sense, and um, some of the stuff we were all, I mean, Chris and I and are huge primetime fans, and right. the, and I, some of the stuff in there, what had that no wavy uh, primetimey aspect to uh -huh. it in the way he was conceiving of it, so it made sense on that tip too. So it was like I was just listening yesterday to um, the fuck record is it the one with Times Square. Uh, oh, uh, Caravan of Dreams? No, not Caravan of Dreams. Uh, or maybe it is. It's. Um, Were you listening to the birthday broadcast? That might not be. Of that Human album. Feelings. Oh yeah. Do yeah, you know yeah. that record? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking and Jamal Dean is just like if that doesn't yeah. make you want to play electric bass. Yeah, him and Albert McDowell. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, those are the two people like I have gotten into from different uh, prime time. 
So you only started playing electric bass as an adult. I mean, I had one in high school, and like I played in like uh, some punk kind uh-huh. of shit with my high school friends, right? But never really, really much of anything to speak of, and like uh-huh. I never really worked on it. It was all just kind of transferring. It is. It, the, I mean, it was sort of like using the crutch of being able to transfer a fair amount just from playing upright, but yeah. not really. And again, it's like I was coming from this, like, I started playing piano and cello, and I was kind of in this classical uh-huh. tip, like, throughout my childhood. So even, like, playing bass lines, like, with groove and, like, yeah, checking out Mo- James Jamerson or Carol Kay and shit like that, like... That stuff uh, has all been more recent for me, oddly enough. Really? Yeah. I mean, not... Yeah. At this point, it's been like eight years, but but it was much later than the... Than but the, conceptually, uh, if you... I mean, as a kid, if you heard, uh, like, you said Carol Kay, like, if you heard yeah. the Beach Boys or something, you would identify <laughs> the bass, and would you think, like, that's the same instrument I play, or it was just, like, conceptually a completely different... No, once I did start playing bass, uh, but... Yeah, I just dove into the jazz up. So, so yeah, I played cello and then like. Where'd you go? Were you from Massachusetts? I'm from a suburb outside of Boston, like ten miles outside, Which called one? Wellesley. Uh, sounds white. It, yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very much uh, kind of a preppy New England, like yeah, upper middle class suburb. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a few of those around there. Yeah, there are. Um, and this one, Wellesley's like one of the main ones of that sort of stereotype. Like, right. It really reminds, I for, I don't know, New York reference, like suburbs either in Westchester or sure. like Connecticut. It's like totally that vibe. Yeah. Um, but in Boston. Right. So, really I don't know. Right. Have you spent much time there? In it. I don't, I don't like it. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a Boston person. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 am, not by, I am not by choice. Yeah, no, it's, it's a rough scene, man. I mean, there's things that I do love about it, but... I think it's hilarious. Like, my stepfather who raised me was, like, down home, down home, blue blood Boston guy. Yeah. Like, ten generations. Yeah. Um, and it's fucking hilarious when he would talk about, you know, the icebox and, you know, just that... Totally. That sort of, like, um, like Boston trash. He, he wasn't trash, dude, but, like, yeah. there's some trashy people in Boston that are oh, so specifically yeah. Boston, and they're of fucking course, hilarious. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. But I don't want to be around them. Yeah, no, it's it can be really it can get dark really really quickly. But there is the of course I I'm endeared to it in a lot of ways. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you like multi like what generation Boston are you? First, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. My dad went to school in Boston, and uh, he was born in Milwaukee, and then I think he might have lived in he mo- both my parents moved a lot. Yeah, I think my dad might have lived in Arlington, Mass, for a minute when he okay. was a kid, but um, he grew up. Yeah, both my parents are all over the place, and then my mom's like Appalachian Midwestern. Uh, mm-hmm. her, so you yeah, cello. That was the first instrument or the piano. Piano. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I was on. It was cool. My my parents were like. Um, my parents are awesome and have always been really supportive. And my mom kind of got me into like taking. Well, I remember they actually had some kind of like petting zoo instrument thing. Petting zoo. Uh, yeah. Like I mean, um, in school, bringing in instruments or something, yeah. and then like started playing. Maybe some kind of basic music class and then my mom I was like into it and then my mom was really quick to being like oh we should like you should take piano lessons which is really nice and then on the other hand my dad was never really as much an aspect of that but he's like into really cool music yeah and always shared it so that I had like a nice cool in what way um I mean he's his shit is like Motown and some jazz music yeah 
and like funk, like he's really into Parliament. He showed me Sam Cooke, but it was always like, especially thinking of Sam Cooke, like an attitude thing of him being like, I remember, I think it's, I can't remember the name of the album, but he showed me some Sam Cooke album that was like live at the Miami Club or something. Uh-huh. It's a famous it's, yeah, yeah, live yeah. show where people are going nuts. And I remember he was always like, yeah, like Sam Cooke, he did this and this, but this is like the real shit. Yeah, this and, is like the more direct kind of like politically minded stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, or, and just musically so much better too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was really into Parliament, Jimi Hendrix, all that kind of stuff. It's all pretty subversive music. Yeah, no, it's fun. Was, and it's... he saw those bands live, and so he's a music fan. Yeah. Not like a, he never studied anything, and, and then and then my mom plays piano, and I think she just wanted, she was like, yo. Yeah, piano in the house growing up? Piano in the house, yep. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Good one, or a beater? Um, My mom has a nice Pretty nice baby grand now, but I think when it was, we had an upright piano. Yeah. Um, but it was a piano. It was like acoustic piano. It was awesome. And, um, and you picked the cello out at a show. And so piano. then I was like, I'm really ADD, and I was like, at a certain point with all these different, uh, until bass, I always wanted to like, something would get, I would get tired of something. And I, at some point, I can't remember when, I was like, oh, I want to, I was interested in other instruments. And then I remember I was taking lessons at um, this music school in Newton, Mass, and, uh, there was it was kind of a like touching moment. It was like this cello, this lady who ended up being my cello teacher was at the end of this hall with like the door open, like playing long tones, and I like was like whoa, you know, and, yeah. and then and she saw me and like was like you know, was like come over here and uh, she just played a long tone. She was like touched the instrument like and she just played a long tone. And Feel vibrant, like, yeah. And I was like I was probably nine or ten. And I was yeah. like holy shit. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. And I really was into it. And then, so then I started playing cello. And then at some point I was like, I'm tired of playing like classical music. It was just that simple. I was like, what's like cello? But like, little did I How know old? what people could do with cello. But I was like 13. Right. I was like, what's like cello, but playing rock music and shit. And I was bass. Right. But then uh, the teacher I saw, they ended up having a bass at this music school. And he was sort of convinced me to try upright first. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the whole yeah. long thing. But did you but, take to Upright immediately? Yeah, I got really, really into it. Oh, man. It was like the only thing I was super into in high school. It's the best instrument. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I've always been really, really into music. Like, And right. loved... I really like regret actually stopped playing cello. I mean, I don't regret starting to play the bass. But, right. But um, I dove into it head first. It was also a cool situation. Like, I was in this middle school. It was funny. I was, kept, I was at my brother's and his fiance's engagement party last night. And I saw this kid who i knew from middle school who i hadn't seen in like 15 years yeah. it was a trip and we were talking about all of this but when i was at the middle school in my town i was kind of a shithead at the time and uh-huh. i was hanging out with these kids who like ended up kind of going in some bad directions like <laughs> um uh-huh. and we were talking yeah like we were just like getting into all we like really like into shoplifting and like lighting shit on fire yeah. and we were like 12 and i think my mom sort of like realized I was hanging with these kids and then she started teaching at this other school, a private school and uh, called Rivers and she sort of, I think she saw what was happening to me and it was, I think part of the draw was to like get me into this, get me out a little bit out of yeah. this scene. So I ended up going to this other school that was like this really nice school that had this music school that was separate but attached that like had rooms with instruments. They had like a double bass, like... And they had like uh, high school, uh, high school. Yep. Yeah. And they had a bunch of different bands um, 
going on in the school for whatever classes and like you could even do you had to do something after school but one of the options was this conservatory program where it was like hardcore like music training like yeah shit yeah like shit that well, like lot, focusing on what kind of stuff lot tons of ear training like yeah harder ear training than i ended up doing at nec it was like really intense and uh playing in ensembles and like writing music yeah some of it was pretty wacky we studied with the get this guy who's like the protege to the um, what's the guy's name? The Lydian chromatic concept guy, George. Uh, I can't remember. Crumb? No, no, no. Uh, I can't remember. Uh -huh. Anyways, um, we were doing all that stuff, and like yeah. I just dove into it head first because I was kind of like a smart, underachieving kind of like spaced out kid. Yeah. Just like real, I just really liked music. I was like, that, yeah, was, yeah, that yeah. was my shit. And listening to it as well. Yeah, although like it's funny over. I've always had these friends through music who were like uh, the people who are always listening, checking out tons of art and have kind of always like mooched their effort. And like, <laughs> I wish like actually I've spent a lot more time like playing than like, I'm trying to like dedicate more time to like checking new shit out. Yeah. Always been more playing than checking shit out. Well, it's just more like at that time at least. And I think it's something that's about me. Like I don't, I, I was always listening to music, but it was like playing that was, I was really, really obsessed with. Yeah. In a way. Yeah, yeah. What were the, like, do you remember which uh, pieces or composers early on got you most excited? Yeah, as a player. Uh, when I well, I was always really into Bach as a kid. Yeah, and uh, but nice. when I started playing bass, I got super into Mingus. Well, that was another cool thing about this because like, there's a lot obviously a lot of really lame shit that mm -hmm. happens in jazz education, mm -hmm. music education. Yeah. But one thing that was cool was like, for whatever reason, the band director in my high school was super obsessed with Charles Mingus and that's mostly what we played. And so, yeah. was, and, and, and I was also like, I'd been playing bass for like two months and I was like playing, just diving into basically just playing Mingus, which, you know? Right. Um, sometimes it, like Ellington or something. It's fucking amazing. Which was tight. Yeah. And the guy was also like in the after school, we were like, I mean, I wasn't, way ahead on this shit but uh we were playing like some ornette too and some eric dolphy and like they weren't like skirting that shit like there was so it was you know it was a cool open life for high yeah. school yeah 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 and there were some people too what's the guy your uh, deekstra was there mm -hmm. who like is a free player you know yeah. so like he you, teaches at nec right or he I did i think so yeah i i think he i think he does yeah i didn't really see him when i was there but okay but yeah you'd like hear him like playing just a mouthpiece at the end of the hall you know it's cool, cool in high school yeah yeah but you had to do that bullshit too, like math and social studies. I did, yeah. My mom's a math teacher. I kind of like liked math a little bit, but I just like I was a bad student. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me yeah, too. yeah. Me too. Always. I wish I had, you know, taken more advantage of it. But yeah, I was like, other than music, I was kind of like wanted to cut know. corners, and I was lazy in the back of the class. Like, you mean with the, you're shooting the shit? You still got into NEC, right? Yeah, but that had to do with one thing. What's that? <laughs> Music, you know. Right, right. That's yeah. what I'm saying. That's what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, it's yeah. like you didn't, you know. No. I ended up, yeah. But were you with friends? Like, I mean, music uh, outside of, like, outside of the music that was made by people that were already dead? Were you checking shit out? Yeah, totally. I was, a lot of it was really lame. I mean, there was some cool, my brother had gotten me into Wu-Tang. Yeah. And, and then some early rock stuff that kind of drifted away more, but. Um, and I was still into that and like Mob Deep and stuff the like that. The first Wu-Tang record's pretty incredible. Yeah, and then o Old Dirty Bastard, like... The first round of solo releases yeah, it's is incredible. Yeah, I, st I still go back to that stuff all the time. Yeah? It's amazing. Yeah. ODB in particular. Yeah, he's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I kind of lost interest in rap for a long time after he died. Really? Yeah. Man, check this shit out. I've been getting obsessed because some of my friends, uh, McCowan showed me and Weinberg this. It's this guy, Tommy Wright III. Okay. It's incredible. Rapper from Memphis. He came out with his first record. I think he was 17 years old in 1994. He made all the beats. It's amazing. It's like, and it's totally like, I mean, it's its own thing. It's also like a cool thing to listen to with what, you know, trap, what's happened to trap right. music in the past five years or whatever. But it also has tickled the same bone of the of the ODB thing of this amazing, like, raw, spooky, hilarious, yeah. like, really visceral. It's like, it's amazing. I saw Wu-Tang Clan play. I saw them a few times, but I saw them oh, that's awesome. a couple of years ago. And now they've got Old Dirty Bastard's son in the group. Oh, right, do you? Doing, no. Young Dirty awful. Bastard? Bad? I, yeah, it's... Man, it I, it bummed me out. I was like deeply depressed. I I yeah. watched one song and left. Yeah, it bummed me out so bad. And uh, he just does an imitation of his dad. That's out. It's super super cre- creepy. It's disgusting. How old is his son now? Twenty, early twenties, maybe twenty, twenty one. Weird. Horrible. <laughs> but the vibe. Where did on- you see it? That's but he was and it was with the it was the Wu Tang Clan. It was wow. like all the dudes from the Wu Tang plus him, and then like another twenty dudes on stage that like. I don't know the fuck they were. Yeah, I'm sort of surprised in a in a, in a way that Wu Tang is down for that. They, dude, they're down but with I money. Guess, yeah, they're just down with money. You know, like yeah. <laughs> I, I think the fact that like RZA and Raekwon and Ghostface like they happen to be great musicians. Yeah, but I think first and foremost, like they're you know they're out there to make money. Yeah, RZA was there too. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he's made like movies and shit. <laughs> you did? Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> he's a Philip Glass fan. Far out. I was listening years ago to uh, I was listening to NPR during like a pledge drive, and I heard this like piano <laughs> in the background. They were doing like a pledge drive, and I was like, "That sounds like Philip Glass improvising yeah. at the piano." And I was like, "Who the fuck is that?" And I was kept listening, and uh, then it was like you know John Schaefer, whoever was like, "Oh, in case you're interested, uh, John back, Schaefer, man, behind me on yeah. the piano is the RZA," and I was like, "What?" <laughs> and so when I met him like a year or two later, I was like, "Hey, man, are you down with Philip Glass?" Yeah, and he's like, "Yeah, how'd you know that?" <laughs> That's mad. Fun. It's also really funny to think about John Schaefer and the RZA hanging out. Yeah. In any context, yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, those, those like, early Wu-Tang records have such a fucking vibe to them. Yeah, no, totally, it's amazing. Like sonically, they just tell this incredible story. Yeah, and everybody's so everyone has a fire in their belly. It's like so yeah vital. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was yeah I was into that shit, and then I was into a bunch of really lame or stuff that I now think is really lame like rock, what? like. Uh, like, um, what are they called? Like emo, emo bands. I, mean, I was into oh. Elliot Smith. Elliot and like, amazing. Elliot Smith is cool, but yeah. I was also into like, um, like Dashboard Confessional. Yeah, what's the no? What's the Death Cab for Cutie? I was into yes. that at the end in middle school. Like, yeah, what are you gonna do? Oh man, it could That's, be so much worse. Yeah, but it could be a lot. Worse. It's so funny. Yeah. Anyways, whatever. Is it worse? So, uh, and I was also into like some modern jazz shit that was happening. Like modern jazz. Like Paul, well, like the Paul Motion scene. Yeah. Um, and like people under that. I was really obsessed. Bass players. I was really obsessed with like Larry Grenadier. Uh-huh. Who, like played with Brad Maldow and like people like Larry that. Larry Grenadier's amazing. He is good. I I find I'm like in a different place with it now, but right. But he's a he's amazing. Yeah. But he plays rock stuff too. Really? I know he played with uh, Modest Yahoo for a minute. There's my, a <laughs> my friend plays in Modest Yahoo's band. Deep, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw some video of him because I was like, you know, whatever, YouTubing him. Like this was like ten, fifteen yeah, yeah, years yeah. or whatever. I was like, oh wow. But Brad Meldow? 
Yeah, Brad Meldow or like um, Chris Davis, like Craig Modern Taylor. Jazz. Yeah. Piano Stuff players. Like you just named all piano players. Yeah, it was, it's true. I was really, I mean, I was m- more into dead people jazz at the time. And, yeah. and that definitely like was a Majumal and Bill Evans. And I think a lot of, um, it's true, a lot of the stuff, modern or not, I was into was piano. Was piano. Yeah. And then I was really obsessed with the Paul Motion on Broadway shit. I mean, which I still like, I don't really listen to it anymore, but. Uh-huh. Who's in that group? There was a couple different live records. I think um, they were all with that guy, Masabumi Kikuchi. I thought uh-huh. he was awesome too. Yeah. It was like later in high school, I started getting into that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then some younger people, like, well, I think there's one with Atias, one with Lauren Stillman. Right. Chris Cheek. Right. Thomas Morgan. People like, I think. It's like two or three of them. I was really into those records. The trio records, the Paul Motion trio records. Yeah. Yeah. Not the music of... you get the girls with in high school. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> not at all. And... No, I remember it was so funny. I was like... Death was, I remember some that. girl in in high school like had had my iPod, and she was like, why is it all classical music? And it wasn't any... Cl- but they were just... Yeah, it was like... like dudes' names. Why yeah, exactly. All, why is it all dudes' names? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, did you go straight from high school to uh, NEC? Yeah, yeah. And why? What? Why, what was it about NEC that attracted you? Um. Well, it's partly because at the end it was between that or NYU, <laughs> which wasn't. And I remember I like visited. I was like, "This is not going to happen. This is not going to work. I can't do this." What about it? NYU. I don't know. It felt like fucking like that show girls or some shit it was yeah. like it just the socials i spent like uh with a really close friend of mine who i loved dearly who went there like i spent a night hanging and uh some other times like visiting and i don't know it was just felt like everybody was like living out their own movie or some shit that's like, that's at 18 the, yeah it's interesting you put that that's a contemporary world yeah and nec i went and hung out with some people and like it just felt much more low-key and like weird and mm-hmm so, anyways, that's that's how I ended up there. But, made that decision. When before you got there, were you aware of like Joe Maneri, Matt Maneri, no. sort of like the history of the place? No, um, I knew about Steve Lacey. That might have been yeah, and like, but yeah, I don't even know if I had thought no, not really. Too free, Paul Blay, like all these dudes that did. Not really. Dude. At least I don't remember thinking that, and I wasn't really aware of that any of that music. Yeah, but I became aware of it super quickly. So like my. Yeah, I really changed like a ton there. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was like first couple years I was there, I was studying with Cecil McBee, which was cool. It was like kind of hilarious. Like sometimes he'd like forget what we had worked on uh-huh. and, get mad at, and get mad at me. But yeah, he's amazing and he's on some really good records and like also just a chill dude, like yeah. an earth guy. And, um, and then I, at some point, linked up with Anthony Coleman and then that was when shit got weird. <laughs> shit got weird. That was when shit got really weird. Um Yeah. What, and his... Ted Reichman. Yeah. Um and I ended up I was also close with John McNeil, like who was a much a teacher in a much more uh kind of do this and this and this yeah. kind of way. But um yeah. Wait, An- what's Anthony. Anthony's he's a modern what's it what's C. his I. That's his department. Contemporary improvisation. Yeah, he te- his teaches a few classes. I right. mean, I, probably different ones now than when I was there. But yeah, but contemporary improvisation. Yeah, and that, was that the first class you took with him? No, I just he's a really popular teacher there, and yeah. like it's a small enough school, at least. And 
uh, yeah, it's a small enough school, especially within the jazz and CI or the people who gravitate to that scene. Right. That you gain an awareness pretty quickly of like, there are these different people who, um, different people would gravitate around for mm-hmm. like, yeah, Joe Morris mm-hmm. and Anthony. And then there were some Fred Hirsch, mm-hmm. some more Jason Moran, some more straight ahead people too. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, and yeah, I think at some point I just, I was already into getting really into like, um, some of the stuff you mentioned, like Steve Lacey or Cecil Taylor right. and Paul Blaise music and uh, like Marion Amish even and Elian Rodigue and shit. Like that, people, were, people yeah. start, you know, because people were putting records on when you're hanging out. And then, at, um, yeah, I don't know. I realized like Anthony, you could just, from talking to him in the hall, talking to the students, like he seemed to represent this open kind of like, you can do what you want, but we'll figure out what your process is. Oh, man. Thing. What a you gift. Know? And so I was really, I was like, okay, that's what I want to do. And and it was cool because I did that half the time for like a while. And then I started with John McNeil, who was just like being hilarious and doing really hard like jazz exercises yeah. still. And then like eventually just started studying with Anthony. That's interesting what you said uh, about studying with Anthony. That, that that's, that's his approach is. Yeah, that's sort of how I interpreted it. Um, and I was also hanging out, like I said, with Ted Reichman a lot, who yeah. uh, I think had some similar ideas or or at least for to advise for someone in my position but then also i was like taking the ensemble with him and it was a little more concrete in some ways right but yeah anthony's thing to me or at least what he ended up giving me uh was like um this open-ended like you can figure out why music that you like works however far far out it is you know Mm -hmm. and let's do that and think about it and and you know use that to inform what you're trying to do and it's sort of this open-ended thing but you but we're gonna figure out a system to get you from point a to point b kind of yeah had you you thought about things in those terms before no no, yeah not really um i mean it's hard for me to remember a little bit like it probably was more gradual and there was other teachers who were exposing me to stuff too and who were weird and like it wasn't so i wasn't totally you know i'm trying to remember how green i guess i was coming into it right the anthony thing but were you improvising with uh, your fellow students right away? Yeah. Because I was also super into um, getting really into Braxton, which through Joe Morris, who had access to some charts, and yeah. Ted Reichman. Yeah, definitely. I was playing that shit, which also was like, that was this uh, sort of similar idea, but maybe in the idea of interpreting someone else's music. Like, okay, what's your role in this, in this open-ended scenario? What's your role? Like, how much can uh-huh. you define it? Like, what's your job here? That as kind a of thinking, yeah, and as an ensemble member, yeah, you know, like, which is something that's still with me big time, like, especially even you know, in open contexts. I think I've gotten more into not defining things. I think I've like relinquished some control, but still, like, yeah, I still like. I don't know how it it's, happens rarely now, but when I end up in a large group improvisation, yeah, I have no idea how to make music in those situations. Yeah, large groups are hard for me. Yeah. Uh, or, or something that I've... I mean, I guess maybe it's a practical thing, too, but something I've shied away from in the past few years. I ha- I sort of had did these put on these large ensemble concerts when I first moved here, but it was really just a re- way to play with people I wanted to play And that with. was free improvisation? Yeah, or sometimes I'd bring in text pieces and stuff. Like, but even a text piece gives it some gives you some indication of, of musical balance. Yeah, no, like, totally. Like, I'd never feel like, you know... The, I'm thinking specifically, like, when I've done a bunch of these, like, Zoran Improv Nights... The end of the show, everyone gets up like fourteen people to play. Yeah, 
and maybe once did I ever find the music like satisfying. Yeah. And I just don't. Cause I mean, I personally don't know how to contribute something without feeling uh, like it's already cluttered. Yeah, totally. And that situation now, like I had, there was a session I went to the other day where I was kind of that asshole, but I was just trying to be straight up. It was like a session that ended up being trio, and the guy who was planning it was like, "Yeah, a couple other people might come," and I'm sort of like, "Well." Let me know if they don't come, and then I'll come. <laughs> it's like, because, <laughs> but it's because it's not like I trying to be an asshole. It's like it's because if you even if you want a set like to play with someone as a way in this stone thing or a session yeah. or something to meet them, I want to meet people playing the way I want to play. And if it's yeah. a if it's a group that doesn't make any sense or is too big, then I don't feel like we really met each other. You know what I mean? I mean, we can hang or whatever and shoot the shit and like. Right play some faux 60s free jazz all day but like that's yeah that more of a waste of time yeah but but the stuff in school was all in the context of playing pieces and shit so it was right. a little bit different and like i wish the groups had could have been smaller but mm-hmm. they were and did you study with joe as well i didn't i didn't connect with joe i mean i mm-hmm. knew him um but i didn't connect with him until after i left the school have you played with him yeah, yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. It's awesome. Yeah, I just sort of like I was a little bit I think on a high horse in, in school because his his ensembles were like um they never like uh at NEC they didn't do anything like leveling the ensembles like oh you're in the you're in the varsity junior varsity kind of thing, you know. Oh. It was all like you could you could put your own ensembles together, but it was all mixed and which is cool. And the head of the department probably had an idea of who was friends with who and kind of intentionally subverted that sometimes. But Joe's, so Joe's ensembles were playing this free music, but it was you would have people who had been playing it for a little bit and were familiar with it, and people who had never right. opened improvised. And I was like, well, I've been playing this music for two years, so I'm not going to play with those <laughs> assholes. <laughs> yeah, I was a little bit like that. But yeah. uh, I've connected with Joe since then. He's awesome. Yeah. And he was always like, Joe, you know, is anyone who knows him knows how positive he is. So like, yeah. once he finds out you're one of the kid weirdos, like he was always super cool. He's so supportive. Yeah, that's awesome. He's like, he's, I mean, I don't think teaching's for everyone. I think he's in the right job. Yeah, I no. Mean, as a musician, that's his job, but you know. Yeah. I think he, like he, it, there's a certain amount of, um, certain people are really good at getting you excited to do things. Totally. And I think he's one of them. Yeah, no, totally. And like, he also understands, I think it, I feel like he understands that what what's going on in the heads of a lot of different students at that time and like how much it can mean to tell them that that they can do it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And in a way that made sense. Like it wasn't in a way I never felt like it was in a way that um took any weight away from what he said where it was like, Oh, Joe is just like nice to everybody. Mm-hmm. He would say things that like meant, you know, were about the way you'd played or whatever yeah. that are pointed to you, but it was always like empowering, which is dope. Yeah. He's also got like um he's one of those improvisers who has like I feel like such a uh, maybe maybe he would say I'm wrong about this uh but improvisation is like a, a philosophy and a way of life. Yeah. And you know the I to me he's like one of those musicians I feel like has the ability to keep you honest. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Like if you're doing some bullshit in your play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. Like I've never gotten to experience it but uh yeah, and and I have definitely resonated with. Um, I mean, it's a, it's sort of a novel idea, I guess, but it's like, or not novel idea, but it, but it, he would, you know, when people t- ask me what kind of music I play, I do think about him saying like, almost the genre itself is trying to 
make your own thing. You know what I mean? Right. Like, um, and so in some way, like you may, you, you know, I feel this resonance with people who, whose music is, doesn't sound like mine because it's about this. Right. Like, so what's honest the answer? Self-expression. What kind of music do you play? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, most of the time I end up saying like, oh yeah, I do a lot of like, f- you know, s- stuff that's in the new music free improv kind of overlap zone and play yeah. in some rock bands. But but there's something that is missed in that that is true in Joe's answer, you know. And it's a good way to think about it because it's helped me make decisions, you know. Yeah. Because it can be easy to, especially if with the practicality of booking shows and shit like that to to get wrapped up in thinking of it inside of a box, you know? Like yeah. Being in the jetty of whatever scene. Right. Did you come here right after college to New York? I did, right away. It was clear I couldn't. this is where you had to be, right? Or well, no? Well, yeah, it was... A, I, I've always loved New York. My mm-hmm. folks lived here. I, like, have family friends here, so came here as a kid and, like, always really dug it and, like, did want to move. Um, but I was also, like, really depressed at the end of school. Really? Just, like, yeah, and really needed a change of pace. And it helped a lot, you know? Yeah. But I was, like, in a dark spot. Like, what? I just... Oh, I don't know, man. I mean, yeah. I think I'm prone, you know, generally prone to those kind of swings, just as so many of us are. But mm-hmm. I think at the time, I just was, like, bottling shit up and not dealing with it in the best way, you know? Like, um, my own insecurities, you know? And it just manifested in sort of petty uh, resentment that I had to people around me that wasn't, yeah. you know, that wasn't on them. Um, right. Which I got over when I left and like, glad to say I'm cool with all of those people, you know, but I just needed to get the fuck out. I was like, graduated and I was like, I'm out of here. Like, yeah. Right away. That's a, uh, that's a good option to have when you're depressed. Yeah, it is. It, it is. I mean, it's new. not a lifelong solution, but it, yeah, a shock to the system can totally help out. And like, it was interesting because a lot of the people a lot of my friends, most of them from school, ended up moving here later, eventually. Right. And it was nice for me to, like, I don't know. I just needed to, like, I feel like it really took me up until that point to, like, uh, learn to love myself. It sounds cheesy, but, like, in a lot of yeah. basic ways, you know what I mean? Oh, and, like, like know myself. Just confidence in what I'm doing, you know what I mean? And, like, um, self-acceptance kind of work, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. I mean, not that, like, I'm at the top of the hill by any means, never, but um, I needed to, like... I don't know. I feel like I was always, like, I think in school, music school, like, it wasn't all-consuming, but the context of this small program and, um, you know, people, I don't know. At a certain point, you're there for four years with different people, and there's only so many of you, and, yeah. like, I felt like... Um, less sure of the kind of music I wanted to make than a lot of my peers seemed to, mm-hmm. and... Um. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. And were you putting together your own projects? Yeah, I like kind of hit the ground running a little bit. Um, here. Yeah, just sort of like uh, I don't know. It was all sort of surreal. It's like I I left this pl- whatever emotional place I was in at NEC, yeah. and then kind of just like came to New York and was like, all right, like. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna go fucking nuts. I'm gonna like go to shows every night. I'm gonna be like, "Hi, I'm Henry." I, I, yeah. You know, I just I want to play like and yeah, put yeah. shit together, and I just like put all my when energy that? to that. That was 2014. 2014. So where were you going to shows in 2014? 65 Fen had just started. Yeah. I think um, there were more house shows going on back then. Yeah. And then something that really was dope that happened. So when I moved, I was in a sublet in in uh, I guess Kensington for three months, and then. Uh, 
bunch of my friends from Boston moved, and I ended up in this apartment uh, on Linden uh, and Nostrand in, like, East Flatbush, I guess. Uh-huh. And um, by coincidence, I, I moved into this apartment with a friend of mine from high school, friend, a couple friends of mine from college, all musicians, in this one building, and on the same block in another building was this other house of musicians. Really? Yeah. And they were having house shows. We were having... We were having... Uh, it was this huge building where, like, there was really no... I mean, it was kind of cr- a crazy building with yeah. a bunch of other stuff that happened. Like, it was a total, like, um, this gang was, like, kind of running my building or, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. The DEA... Not and, musicians. Yeah, yeah. The <laughs> DEA and FBI ended up raiding my building. But needless to say, noise complaints were not an issue. And um, so we were having, like... I was having... We were having a hip-hop show every month. We were having really? a rock show every month. And then I was putting on these free improv shows, basically as a way to meet people. You know? Yeah. Um, and sometimes doing these like large ensemble things or different configurations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was pretty like... So who was coming through to play the, the spot? Uh, Michael Foster, Lila uh-huh. uh Anthony Cole, Anthony played there. Yeah. Um, ben Bennett. Um, some like bands, like noise rock kind of bands, one from Boston. Uh, what were they called? They're all my friends, but they have a different band now. Yeah. But it was a, I think it was called Secret Ethan. I don't know. Okay. That was a cool, that was a cool band. Um, but yeah, a lot of different, a lot of different people. I think, uh, Michael Evans. Yeah. Some performance art. Um, house shows are great. Yeah, it was the shit. I mean, there were things about it that were annoying at the time, for sure, that I like. Like, people getting your house messy and stuff? Yeah, my house getting trashed, and, like, having that many shows, too, was, like, just the atmosphere of that house. Yeah. It was, like, it was insane, you know? It was, like, it was great. It was a great way to move here and, like, feel like I was in it and meet a lot of people, and it was really fun, but... Right. Also, like, when some drunk asshole is, like, on a mic at four in the morning, and I was working this coffee shop job at the time, so I was, like... Yeah, so like, like all the time. Five. <laughs> I was working so much. Yeah, I was just going nuts. So, Jesus Christ, it's strange. I, I feel like the the, I mean, for improvised music in New York, it's always been you know relied on these tiny little spaces that you know tend to come and go very quickly. Yeah. Um, but more than ever, like at least like when I, I mean, I'm not. How old are you? Twenty seven. Okay, I'm like ten years older than you, but. Like the di- the huge difference in that, like when I moved to New York, yeah, it was still a ton of stuff in Lower Manhattan, yeah, and there was a stage, yeah, and yeah, yeah. like a business like name and phone number in the phone book, yeah, you know, there was like a like, lot of that. You could yeah. walk from like you know Bowery Poetry Club over to Tonic, over to the Knitting Factory, I like, go all this stuff, and that's just like a thing of the past for improvised music. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean that amount of stuff with in that kind of proximity too the just concept of it being walking distance for a certain yeah yeah totally and I also feel like yeah I wish there were more house concerts happening and then I also wish there was more like kind of middle gigs or something middle gigs like what's that like between the like basement improvised series and roulette roulette. yeah between the past the hats and the gigs that take like a a fucking year to book (laughs) yeah I know I know there's I mean uh there's a couple, but even then, it's like yeah, like Barbez is like that, yeah, right, yeah. Barbez is cool. Barbez totally. F- I love it there. I mean, yeah. you can't do everything there though. And like, I feel like for I've done some. I've booked a couple like noisy things there, and you got some blowback. Got some blowback from the management. No, from the from the um, 
the audience. patrons <laughs> in the other room. There was one time was I hang out there a lot too, and there was one time where I was there, and this guy's like Irish guy was like talking to the bartender. He didn't know who I was. He was like, "What's up with all this fucking like uh, modern jazz? Like, what? What? Why are you guys booking this bullshit? You know?" And I was like, I actually kind of inquired him about it. It was kind of interesting. You say, like, "Hey, what did you like about the music?" <laughs> yeah, and he was. I don't remember. And he's like, "It's pretentious and whatever. I don't like it. I'm just fine." But I think they're like, if you go to. They don't. They're so cool. Those. Yeah. I mean, if they book you, they'll stand by you. But but right. I think some of the people who hang out there, they don't. It's a neighborhood bar. I mean, yeah, totally. You know, I, I can relate to that. You know, I, yeah. I um, I've gone, I've left places when I realized there was live music happening. Sure. If I've gone out for like something to eat or something to drink, and the band starts, like I'm like, I don't really want to fucking hear this. Totally, <laughs> totally. My favorite time to hang out at Barbez is Sunday at like four. Yeah. <laughs> it's like. That's a good hang. Yeah. You should get out of here. No, <laughs> exactly. Totally. <laughs> My hands are shaking. Nice having you. Um, I know. You're on this coffee tip, man. Um, I drank so much last night. I did uh, I, you know, I did something really stupid last night. What? I did something really fucking stupid Ooh. last night. I was uh, getting loaded. Yeah. By myself. Yeah. And I was watching these interviews with uh, this dude, um, Jesse Smollett. Jesse, the guy that... Oh, uh, yeah. The empire that staged his of own Of course. Attack. Yeah, yeah. So I was watching these interviews, and this guy's like psycho. Wow. But I got thinking. I was like, if you wanted to beat yourself up, like, would your body, like, how how badly can you beat yourself up? Because it would seem like naturally your body would stop you from doing it. Right. So I punched myself in the head. <laughs> you Americans, you went American psycho really hard. I, like, I'm like a big lump on my. Head. <laughs> like, you can hit yourself pretty hard. <laughs> oh man. So. So coffee. So coffee, yeah. yeah. So getting back to the shows, um, did you, I mean, you moved here along with people from from Boston? I moved here into a sublet by myself, and and then a bunch of other people came in the fall. Yeah. From Boston, because the Boston leases are all September, because of all the fucking students. They're all September to September. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Fall's the best time to be here. I broke my lease. I wanted to get Yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah, I got out of there. I and I stiffed him with a horrible sublet. Really? Yeah, I feel bad about that. Did two, you? Two people. But. Did you move here with an idea that you would be doing? Um, I was just talking about this with a friend over breakfast today. Like, did you, did you know that you were going to go into it? Hopefully, you know, doing music that you love, improvised music, jazz, but also just like taking like paid sideman gigs. That's a constant thing um, that's been shifting. You know. Um, I had a really vague idea of what I wanted to do. Yeah. And when I came here, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to move here, but I, didn't, I got this cafe job. I moved here with the job, which was great. What cafe was it? The place next to our best. That's how I became a regular there, okay. oddly enough, actually. More like through that than music. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I've been teaching instead of doing that. I had this situation. I was living in a more expensive apartment and then moved into this place I'm in now that's super cheap and it kind of allowed me to quit the cafe job and just go with the amount of students I have yeah and I really like teaching that's actually kind of surprised me I really dig it um but in terms of the line where or what the spectrum from music that feels totally personal to work yeah is uh yeah it's like it's pretty mercurial for me Mm -hmm. um but there's I guess vague boundaries to it I think I'm more hardline than I would have expected to have been. Hardline in that you just won't, you don't want to play music you don't believe in? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think I've, 
yeah, more than I would have expected yeah. of myself maybe five or six years ago. Yeah. But, and I've also just gotten into good shit, weirder and weirder shit. Yeah, by <laughs> by mainstream standards. Just, That's a little tricky. <laughs> yeah, I'm just keep slipping down the well. I remember yeah. years ago, Mary Halverson saying to me something about, um, I don't know, she, you know, her nickname used to be Gigs, just because she was always always gigging. Mm-hmm. She still is. Yeah. But she would, yeah, she was like, yeah, you got to do the $50 gigs. Those are the ones that, you know. Yeah. Like she was just always playing gigs, like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, despite what I said before, too, like, I do like a lot of different types of music. Sure. Um, and, yeah, I feel like for me, it's like I've definitely done a lot of gigs that I did wish I hadn't done that sucked musically. Uh, like, but what type of suck tree? Because uh, I've done some pretty horrible cabaret gigs. Okay, yeah, that's fine. You do, you yeah. Um. Although those aren't as hard as the really bad jazz and free improv gigs, in a way, those are really because depressing. you can just yeah you can just space out and like on the cabaret jet you're in and out. The rates are great. It's yeah. like, yeah. but it but yeah. yeah. If it's too close to home, it can fuck you up. But like bad when when <sighs> I mean, there's a number of things that can make music bad, but. When you take part in a performance of, of improvised music that uh, isn't working, yeah, that could be a really that could fuck you up. Can fuck you up on a number of levels. Yeah, if the other people think it's killing, that's really awkward. You know, just keep your mouth shut. Yeah, but it also, I think, I mean, you know, it's not even really worth thinking about too much. But I get kind of dark on it of like, if someone, this shit is so abstract. Mm-hmm. to people to someone who hasn't been exposed to it before that my fear is that someone who for whom this is new hears those mm, and it's close it. enough and they're like this is bullshit yeah and then they're done right and the difference if you d- aren't haven't checked it out yet between that and whatever the good shit is great. is yeah. may seem really subtle or like you know it requires uh, a closer look or something right so, that shit, I'm like, yeah. I mean, and no one's asking for this, so, like, why? You know what I mean? Like, why? I mean, <laughs> Again, it gets back to the whole thing of, like, you know, if it's good, it's got to be serious to be fun on a certain level. Or something, yeah. You know? I mean, as a listener of improvised music, I really enjoy hearing great improvisers in bad musical situations. Sure. You know, it's really cool to hear how they navigate that. You yeah. Know, when it ain't working. Yeah. Um, but that's where it gets past the point of like, oh, well, am I listening to music for enjoyment or for like? Right, exactly. That becomes maybe more of like a inside baseball kind of. Yeah, thing. which is yeah. cool. Yeah, it should be. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have found. I don't know, man. I've I've had periods. I've had moments in my life where I've done a gig with musicians that I really respect. Yeah. And um, they don't say anything. Like I I I intuit that they weren't into it, and yeah. it'll fucking make me like miserably depressed for really weeks on end. Really? Yeah. That's long. Yeah. I try to just exercise it in an hour or two, man. Yeah. That's a lot. That I couldn't handle. I couldn't hang on to that for two weeks. I, I've had it where I couldn't get out of bed the next day. Oof. Yeah. Crushed. Yeah. What's the antidote? Huh? What's the antidote? I don't know. Yeah. Like, it's, uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. I mean, I, I, I do find that, you know, with, with time, with the age of the experience, the, the gigs are less likely to suck. Yeah. And also, I mean, back to the question of um, different types of gigs I like to play. I think, like, more and more I 
I've gotten some more in, enjoyment on some lighter way of, of like, or or in a the way you were talking about before, maybe like in a, a chin scratching kind of way mm-hmm. of situations that don't work or situations that seem really weird or like combinations that are totally fucked up. But for the most part, I really like things that have a history to them, and also like acknowledging that even there's certain things that you can only do if there's a real familiarity improvised music or not that takes time even with really good people yeah you know but what what, what history are you talking about you're talking about like a musical tradition or like a personal history with the other like music? a band tradition or what yeah. or a collaborative like a collaborative relationship yeah you know like i just think something that i've i think i've learned in the past couple of years is that like good music doesn't often takes a long time yeah to make you know like there's a which is cool. I think I've, I've like seeing um, maybe people in my age group start to kind of. I was at the show uh, last night at Issue Project Room. Charmaine Lee's mm-hmm. uh, first show of her residency was fucking sick. It was awesome. Um, How and, long was the show? Um, the full hour. Yeah, no, it was two sets. Okay. She did solo and then played trio with Andrea Pensado and It M Theftable. His two vocalists. Oh, okay. It was fucking fire. It was awesome. Okay. And I was really I was having a ball and I was also kind of touched during it because I was just thinking about like. She's my age. Sam Weinberg's my age. Some of us who are, uh, we're sitting with John McCowan and Beargren. It's like uh, this um, age group of people who are. It feels like I was. It felt like a team win or something. Yeah. I was like, yeah, like we're starting to do some shit. And I feel like I've seen in the past couple of years, like some of my peers, Sam's band, Blore, like these things like start to happen. And yeah, you guys you know, are all doing like, a good job of maintaining a community. From what oh. I can tell from like, oh, thanks. Watching from afar, definitely felt that way last night. And but it also was just this realization that like. And Sam and I, you know, have been playing duo for a really long time, yeah. and like, it was fine when it started, and we were, we, sh- it was great that we were playing together, and we, but we've both gotten so much better, and the thing has gotten way better, and I really value that, like, yeah, it didn't, it, it didn't come out of us getting together, and I don't know, being like, it came out of us, bo- uh, of, of, of us both being comfortable being where we're at, and kind of like mm-hmm. working on shit and talking about it a lot, and like saying when we thought it sucked, and like going to check out people who we thought were better than us and like right i mean you know and that's that's you know i I would say for a lot of us definitely for myself like the gold standard of like top shelf premium free improvisation is going to be like the parker Litton guy trio yeah um and those dudes have been playing together as a trio for like 50 fucking years yeah totally and and then also like yeah other i was in this rehearsal space with uh this band silk purse Who's really, it's uh, Mark Morgan, and um, I can't remember the other two guys' names. The bass player, Richard, I can't remember his last name, from Sightings. Okay. And then a guy in electronics. And it, was, it was my favorite band in New York. I'm really bummed that they never made a record, and they were fucking incredible. But it was really cool being in that rehearsal space, because that was a rock band that rehearsed twice a week yeah. for years. Like, and they played out, like, every three or four months. You know, it was like, I was like, that's the shit. Yeah. And knowing that those were the same people who made those sightings records that are so fucking good, I was yeah. Like, wow. That was you know, it's like that's a cool. That was a good perspective for me as like a music school nerd to get. You know, it's like right. It's no and secret. you and Sam have been playing duo for a number of years now. Yeah. Yeah, and that I have to imagine that extends to other projects that you guys both played. Yeah, it's interesting. We have, I mean, we uh, play a lot with drummers too. Yeah. We still haven't made a record, which is funny, but um, and it's interesting to see how. It changes or stays yeah. the same with different drummers. I mean, have you been making a lot of records? No. Do you want to? I do. I just am. Uh, I have to either learn how to record myself or make more money. <laughs> yeah. But it's expensive. 
I just made a record. Uh, I mean, I I made a um, just finished the masters and everything for a record of mine for a band of mine called the Full Salon, which is like my rock, like synthed out rock band. Yeah. Um, Who's in that? It's been a rotating cast of people, but on the record, there's a bunch of different people on the record. It's uh, this guy Evan Allen playing synths. Um, he's in Tradici, a couple of Tradici Baji people. Pete Moffat, the drummer from Tradici. Are you in Tradici Baji? No. Okay. No, but I went to school with all those people. Right. Um, my friend Connor is on the record. Uh-huh. Um, Andrew Smiley, Melody Stancato is singing. Okay. Um, Seabrook takes a solo. Weinberg takes a couple solos. <laughs> and it, yeah. and it, who's putting it out? Uh, still figuring that out. Yeah. But fuck. Yeah. It'll come out sometime in the next 25 years. Um, no, but I'm really happy with it. And then, I, you know, I've made a couple DIY solo records. That, yeah. That's, I mean, the shit I'm really excited about is the bands I'm in and then uh, solo in that band. Improvising in the studio is, like, something that, for me anyway, took, like, some getting used to. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, that's why, that's part of why I made them at home, too. Like, yeah. I mean, I had a friend of mine from college rec- do an on-site recording first, and it just, like, sucked i also picked a really bad spot i was like super dry room i just like couldn't which record is that did that come out no no (laughs) it never will i mean i listened to the one that you put out um on philip white's thing anti-causal oh yeah and that's awesome thank you doesn't even sound like a bass yeah uh you know it's been fun and i've been doing it i can't i want to record more and more because i kind of just my metabolism my metabolism with that stuff is still pretty fast because i just i've only been playing solo concerts for a few years so i'm just like obsessed with it right now yeah it's been awesome um but I really want to try to do a recording somewhere super reverberant. Like it's your project room. Yeah. You should get in there. Yeah. Yeah, somewhere like that. Yeah. Um, and but, play the room. Yeah, it just feels, I mean, it's, it affects the way I play, you know, mm-hmm. um, as much as the sound. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just like you playing a string instrument in a room like that. It's like a Ferrari, you know. I mean, that room was built for strings. It, yeah, it's dope. Drums, electric guitar, all that shit sounds kind of mucky in there. But strings, especially like a solo or like a quartet. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So, yeah, that's what I've been been working on. I want to, yeah, I wish I could, I got to, maybe I should just bite the bullet and start trying to like record myself better. But I mean, there's always this kind of like because, cost up front thing, but, uh, you know, Home recording is cool if you figure out a vibe to it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If you figure out a way to make it, like, your vibe that, like, yeah. it's supposed to sound that way. Right, 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 you right. Know? No, no. But that's a good point. home recorded music, if it's, I think, approached without that consideration, yeah. can kind of sound lame. Yeah, no, it's true. But there's some, yeah, like, I made a, I did a re- kind of a session recording with Carlo Costa and Ryan Ferrer the other day, and um, that sounded awesome. Like yeah, just the roughs. Yeah, just recorded with like a Zoom or you like no. Mic? He put up two mics, um, kind of uh, I don't know, five feet from each other uh-huh. with Carlo and I facing each other in between them. Okay, and then he had his amp with like a close mic on it too. Yeah, and it was cool. It was awesome. That's how I mean. I also would want my recording, my next solo record to have that. Clo- I love that close mic shit for what I've been working on. Yeah. Do you? I mean, are records important to you? Like, in, like when you think about <laughs> like what you want to do. What I mean, I don't. I don't know that people are still into records. Are in they? Term- yeah. Um. I've never. I mean, I love listening to records. I've never been a physical like a huge. Right. Um, I mean, I like to have it, but I, but but having physical records never actually meant very much to me. Hmm. Um. Is that what you mean, or I just mean 
I mean, yeah, the physical thing, that's fine. It's done. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I accept it. But one thing that I still kind of like I'm, I'm wrapping my head around that I'm not quite sure I'm, I'm okay with yeah. is the length of a physical record mm-hmm. would dictate the amount of material yeah, yeah. that you had to put on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I think that was a kind of a cool challenge, you know? Like, yeah. all right, I'm not going to, you know, make a recording until I have at minimum, you know, 35 to 40 minutes of material. Yeah, that's interesting. That's never meant. I mean, that's not been a much of a consideration of mine in in making records. But yeah, I have been thinking about length of, especially in solo sets, um, more and more. Because yeah. I think it seemed more pervasive a little bit ago. But I, when I moved here, I was immediately struck by how loud and fast everyone played, and by how short they played. Yeah, it was like everything, which was cool because it was still novel to me. But I was like, holy shit, everything's like fucking blaring in 15 minutes like yeah and um i think there's some stuff that you that i'm interested in doing that you can't do at that length right and um also i'm just into the personal challenge like well that's yeah maybe personal the, challenge i mean i i did a, a tour last summer with the um specific purpose a solo tour yeah of not playing one long piece yeah i started doing playing shorter pieces yeah, yeah, yeah. and and because that was terrifying to me and as really? like an improviser, it was one of the greatest things I've ever done. Yeah. And just in terms of like feeling like I was actually growing. Yeah. Rather than just doing the same fucking shit over and over again. Yeah. I've gotten into the pieces recently for a length too. I mean, and it's recent, like, because I think probably the first solo record and maybe even the Philip one, they're not very long. I mean, yeah. they're 30, 35 minutes maybe. That's great. But I want to do at least, you know, 45, 50 for the next one. Yeah. But it's been nice to play pieces for the same reason. And it kind of like, it's, I've also, I'm in a place now where, and it's ebbed and flowed where I really love going into it with like totally blank and like having the opportunity to feel out the room and yeah, do it. You know what I mean? Like there's preparation that goes into it and I sure. have vocabulary of course, but for a while I was picking starting places or like it was more formulated and now like it's finally gotten to the point and the pieces helped me do that, do it, splitting it up. It's like, and you've been playing an Anthony Coleman's trio. Yeah. And what's that been like? Been awesome. You're like walking bass lines? No, it's, <laughs> Kind of reminds me of uh, Lowell Davidson's music. Have you ever checked that shit out? No. Joe's told me about Lowell. Yeah, I think he's a was a Boston or New Haven guy too. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of like an underground hero in that region. He's awesome. It kind of reminds me of that. I mean, it's Anthony, of course, but in terms of mo- like other piano trios that it sort of like has sparked a thought of or whatever that come. But it's uh, it's Anthony's music, which a lot of it is like cell based and moving through things. But right. there's also stuff that are sort of art pieces and. Uh, that group is, I think, in the past few gigs, really developed a, a vibe. I mean, we yeah. we dove into it headfirst. It was kind of hilarious the way it started. We like how did how so? We Anthony got this gig at LPR that was uh the, during the LPR ten year anniversary uh-huh. thing that was supposed to be kind of a I don't know some Zodic night like throwback kind of vibe. Okay. Like they had the Postizos, okay, Cubanos Postizos and Mark Rubos thing, and then they wanted like Sephardic tinge Anthony's uh-huh. trio. And I think uh, Anthony was like, oh, whatever. But he and Mela had played, the drummer had played at um, some one of the Zorn improv, Stone improv things, I think. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he hit me up for some reason. <laughs> and then we played that gig, and I, it was like a one-off. And then, like, I don't know how much later, a month or something, Anthony was like, texted us. He was like, do you guys want to go to Columbia? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and because it's like, I, I, it, I'm learning. I was, there was something else I was waiting on, or... Uh, Seabrook's trio is trying to do something, uh, and I, I, I feel like all these embassies that fund artistic stuff in South America are just like, it's like insanely last minute. So we, 
um, we ended up like finding out we were going, and like two weeks later we went, and then that was like kind of the first time that trio like was doing anything. We were like fucking in Colombia, like. <laughs> and that, what you, I mean, you told it was that. surreal. Like, was it? That was just like one gig, though, right? It was, but it was really like a teaching thing, right? Uh, with playing and like, we were, you know, I was playing like a baby bass most of the time, and like keyboards. It was like, but. You know, we were in Colombia, and it was amazing. It's and, amazing. Yeah, it was fucking incredible. I mean, and I'm so obsessed with a lot of that music, and Anthony is too. And Colombian music. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, I was really into the Meridian Brothers, which is like a band now uh-huh. from Bogota, but there's all this stuff, Cumbia, that informs that, and I mean, it was just amazing. Yeah. Uh, and, like, we got to go to some really driving from one, we went to... Cartagena and this other city, Mompost. And between the two, we went to some really remote regions. We went to Palenque, which is like, you know, totally third world. Yeah. Um, I think, I'm, I don't know if it's a, it's like a, I think maybe the equivalent of a, of like a reservation in the States kind of thing. Right. Anyway, like seeing stuff like that for me was amazing. It's one of the best parts about being a musician, if you can tour. Yeah, totally. So anyways, we did that and it was like totally diving in headfirst and, yeah. and really hilarious. And the dynamic in that group is, is hilarious and awesome and I love those guys. And it was cool because was, I was kind of nervous going into that, but um, it also just like ripped the bandit off of me feeling like Anthony's my teacher or these guys are older than me and right. established, you know. Um, they've like totally welcomed me and expected me to do nothing less than like my thing, you know, which is awesome. Yeah. That's got to feel good. Yeah, it's cool. It's very yeah. affirming. Yeah. And, and it's really cool to like re start a new kind of collaborative relationship with Anthony, you know. Yeah. Outside of the teacher people context. Yeah. And it seems like that band is playing with some regularity, which he I don't think Anthony's had for a while. Yeah, I think he's trying to play more. That's great. In fact, I know he's like saying he's 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 I mean, he's been doing a ton. It's been Yeah. He's playing in Faye Victor's band like the Herbie Nichols cover band and doing solo shows and he's going, he's, 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 he's on fire. Too, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you did a, a solo tour in Europe recently, no? Yeah, I mean, I, I did, um, I was over with CP Unit and okay. then did like a week after. Okay. Which was great. Yeah, yeah. How'd that go? It was very fun. Were you it borrowing was, bases? Yeah. Oh, it sucks, man. Yeah, yeah. But they were all pretty good in this case. So. Where did you play? Um, I played uh, in The Hague and in... Uh, uh, Paris, um, and one other place in the Netherlands. Okay. My memory's horrible. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, yeah. But it was only three or four shows. But yeah. it was great. Yeah, it was awesome. It was really fun. And uh, it was cool to connect with some more people who I would kind of met, like um, in Amsterdam, and uh, Dave Rempis from Chicago was on tour at the same time, who's actually from Wellesley, too, which was far out. Oh, yeah. um, and some other people I knew were like, it was cool. It was a nice, like, I got to see a bunch of people, and I was doing that was playing longer solo sets and it was I feel like that was uh, that was when the solo thing started to become really fun and that's how you do it shows. Is being, if, if you can do show night after night that's when you'll get your really get a solo thing together yeah yeah and the anonymity of being overseas or like totally. whatever on tour and yeah yeah that was awesome I remember um, I was with Peter Evans a couple years ago we were watching Evan Parker play solo yeah and I, I was not aware of this, but I guess Evan had been on tour for like three weeks straight. Mm-hmm. And Peter was like, yeah, you can hear it. He was like, that's the sound of a guy who's been playing solo every night for three weeks. Peter. Yeah, that's what he said about yeah. Evan, because he was just like oh, on yeah. fire. Yeah. It was just all dialed in, and just, yeah. you know, it was amazing. He sounds awesome. Evan? Yeah. yeah. I think he sounds amazing right now. Some people, I feel like, don't 
think he like can play. They'll they're wrong. say shit like that. Yeah, but it's awesome. I'm gonna go see that the Schlippenbach thing. In a couple yeah. Weeks. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're wrong. Evans, yeah. the fucking. I saw him last year play a solo piece that was like more burning than anything I've ever heard him do. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's cool to think about uh, how that shit has progressed too. Especially his, uh, tenor playing to me is like, but, but all of it, I guess. Tenor playing is beautiful. Yeah, and it's like gotten. I mean, it's interesting because it feels so much more jazzy or something yeah. than it was. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, I. I've heard it in some contexts that um, were much noisier than I expected, and it totally worked. And it was like, I've got it's really cool. I'll play for you. Oh, please! Yeah. Crazy shit. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, did, what, did we miss anything? I don't know. We did good. I think we did good. All right. Thanks, Henry. Hey, pleasure. Yeah. All right. That was Henry Fraser. I hope that you enjoyed that. He's a good egg, and I look forward to uh, hearing him for years to come. And I look forward to playing with him. We're gonna play, Henry. Pay attention to what I'm saying right now. If you want to find out more about Henry, go to henry-fraser.com. Henry-fraser.com. And once again, thank you all. Thank you for the last six years. It means the world to me. And uh, I hope to, to keep hearing from you guys. All right. Talk to you next week.